0: Alright, so, I said 2 Corinthians, didn't I? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I apologize. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse number 2. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse number 2. I have too many notes here in front of me, there we go. Yes, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse number 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. I don't know if any of you have been to this particular place in Washington, D.C., uh, Arlington uh, Cemetery. Anybody been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? Okay, and you've maybe watched the changing of the guard. Um, it's incredible. And there's a aspect of faithfulness, of stewardship, right, that is very clear, very obvious. Um, when you watch this, it is a place that, Um, is of great respect and honor. Uh, There's a soberness and a solemnness to being there. And there's a great responsibility. I know those soldiers, they take this particular job very, very, very seriously. And I am not uh, aware of all the rules and regulations and details, but I understand they have a very strict regiment that they follow. And I understand from, from what little bit I know that even minor violations will cause them to be removed from this uh, great responsibility, this, this great duty. And we see this, and we are um, in awe, and we are respectful, we're thankful. But sadly, for many believers, or so-called Christians, they don't take the service of their, their king as a soldier in the Lord's army, even close to this serious, for an unknown soldier, a tomb of an unknown soldier. There are, sadly, too many of us as so-called Christians professing believers who aren't half as committed, half as disciplined, half as faithful as these soldiers are uh, to to guarding a tomb and to showing honor to those who are uh, unknown, who have... Paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms. So it's a passage that speaks to our stewardship. And we'll look at this again later in the lesson. But stewardship has to do with management. And we'll look at some different principles regarding that, uh, specifically from this verse, a little later and from a parable that Jesus gave. But we see stewardship as management, and we see faithfulness as being a key aspect of, Of that stewardship, so the Bible identifies our present location, as Christians, identifies our present location, as a temporary dwelling place. We we think of that as Earth, right? Uh, We're we're here. We're 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 citizens. Uh, Probably every single one of us are at least citizens of the United States. Okay, either by birth or by Naturalization, And maybe you have a citizenship somewhere else as well. Anybody have a dual citizenship? Heaven, heaven yes, exactly right, okay. Uh, how about another earthly citizenship? You're right, though, if we're believers, it's definitely heaven as well. Good point. But anybody else have a, another earthly citizenship, like Canada or anywhere? No? Okay. I, uh, I knew a man at our former ministry who was a Canadian citizen, as well as United States citizen, I didn't know if we had anybody like that in our ministry here. But let's go to some passages and let's talk about what the Bible describes our current temporary dwelling uh, to be like. First Peter two, nine through eleven. First Peter two, nine through eleven. For sake of time, we won't necessarily read out loud all of these passages. But 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, if you'll take a, a minute maybe and look at that, what would be maybe one or two descriptions from this passage of our current temporary dwelling? Or a couple of terms that Peter uses there. Peculiar. Peculiar? Okay, good. So our citizenship is unique, it's unusual, it's not your average national. Citizenship. Brian? Strangers and pilgrims. Strangers and pilgrims. Exactly. Strangers and pilgrims. We are seeing right here in this passage that our citizenship is unique and it is temporary. We are strangers. And we are more and more, as Bible believers, looking stranger and stranger. Even down to common sense, basic realities. Even Protestant churches, Protestant churches, okay, are capitulating and compromising. Another governor of a neighboring state just compromised with basic biological realities and will veto, I guess, a bill that would protect children from what is essentially mutilation. It's called gender-affirming surgeries, but it's euphemistic terminology for mutilation. Lifelong medical interventions, pain to do something that is not possible, to try to change somebody's gender. What did the Pope just do this week? He did another one of those ambiguous waffle blessing of same-sex unions, right? Right? And basically came out and said that Catholic priests and bishops should pastorally practice a form of blessing upon that which God has condemned, that which God says is an abomination, that which God clearly has said no to and has not designed. But now pastorally, pastorally should offer blessings while at the same time holding to supposedly Catholic doctrine. It's just, you know, we're looking more and more like strangers because what does the unsaved, the woke or the liberal and the unorthodox, when they hear a Catholic pope give that kind of proclamation, what, what do many people, especially among the unsaved, what do they think? Oh, Christians are giving a blessing on, see, everybody just Progress. Catch up with the times, right side of history, all that stuff starts coming out, right? Are we not looking more and more like strangers and pilgrims? Yeah, we are. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through, okay? What about 1 Peter 1, Is there a particular phrase that's used? That maybe stands out, that speaks to this temporary aspect of our dwelling here in this earth. Phrase maybe, oh, uh, Drew. Sojourning, time of our sojourning. Some of us have sojourned over the last couple of weeks, maybe had some time off from work or took a trip, and you went temporarily on a cruise or at someone's house, or like us, we went to the Creation Museum, Ark Encounter, uh, maybe visited a family member's home. We sojourned. We were there temporarily. It wasn't our permanent dwelling place. Okay? So, time of our sojourning. What about Matthew 5 and verse 13? Speaks to a characteristic of us as believers. Matthew 5 and verse 13. Salt. Salt salt of the earth. And. That maybe is not as direct about the temporary dwelling, but it does speak to the influence that we should be having in this place that God has called us to in this time, in this culture, in this era of history. We are to be salt, the kind of salt that is obviously biblical, that is godly, that is reflecting the light of the world, Jesus Christ. What about Matthew 5, 14 through 16? Another Phrase that we're familiar with, referencing our abode here on the earth. Salt and what else? Lights. Lights, and I just referenced that, and we are to be reflecting the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Again, influence. Again, there's so much that we could say about light. That continues in Ephesians 5 and verse 8. That same metaphorical, allegorical language, metaphor. that same metaphor is used in Ephesians 5 and verse 8. What is the phrase there? Walk as children of light. light. There again is light. And there's all the different ramifications of light in regards to life and disinfecting, showing the way, directing our steps. The Word of God is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. But as believers, again, we're to be little L lights, reflecting the capital L light of the world, Jesus Christ. And we are, in a sense, like the moon and the stars that are just simply reflecting, or the moon in particular, reflecting the light of the sun. And we are to be reflecting the light of the Son of God, of course. What about Philippians 3 and verse 20? This is the one that uh, even uh, Gary referenced a few moments ago. Philippians 3 and verse 20, probably a verse that we're very familiar with. How how does that refer to us as believers? Citizens of heaven. heaven. Our conversation, our citizenship. That word there is uh, specifically regarding a person's legal standing as a citizen. And we, when we trusted Christ as our Savior, we entered into the kingdom of God. We know there's a full fulfillment of that in the future. But we entered in as citizens of heaven, as children of God. So this life, of course, here on this earth is what God has called us to for a period of time. Yesterday in my message At the memorial service for Arnie, I mentioned about time being portioned, about it being precious, about it having purpose. And all of that that goes into this uh, aspect of time. But we have a period of time that we are here on this earth that as citizens, dual citizens, we know certain things are true. I understand this is getting very watered down in our nation today. I understand. What are we up to? Eight million people in three years, who have entered the United States illegally? Eight million, if I remember right. Does that sound what, you, what you've heard? Eight million in three years? That's a lot of people. That's bigger than the majority of even the big cities in our country. Um, and, and there's a purpose in that, even. We understand that there's a, a purpose in that uh, by the current administration. But there are supposed to be, supposed to be, certain... Um, well, for a citizen, uh, there should be certain benefits. should be certain privileges, certain freedoms, certain rights for people who are legal citizens. When I went into, well, Kelly and I, uh, before the kids were born, we went on a mission trip to northern Manitoba, Canada. We were with a mission team from our church, and we were pulling a trailer. And this is going into Canada, and I think somebody at the window Made the wrong statement, said something about we're going to do some work for a church. And those Canadian Mounties, they were all over that, like ugly on an ape. And they called us all in. And we had to sit there and they were like, You're taking jobs, you're taking money. You're... And we're just like, Where does the mission trip from a church in Terre Haute? We're just, we're just going to help. And they were all about the fact that we were taking money and jobs and whatever other influence that they were afraid of. I mean, you think about all the different ways in which uh, we have certain privileges and rights and freedoms as citizens. We, we couldn't even go into Canada without getting questioned. I couldn't go into Kenya, East Africa. Most of us, if you've been overseas, you know how it is to go through customs, passports, and everything has to every T has to be crossed, every "I" has to be dotted. You've got to have exactly the right stamps and certain signatures. And you got to have certain things declared right in your baggage. And I remember when I got off the plane and was going through customs in Nairobi, and I could see the missionary over uh, waiting for me, and this security guard was going through my luggage. He was going through my my um, suitcase opening up my clothes and looking at things, and the missionaries over there laughing at me. <laughs> he was he was having he was having fun with it, and everything checked out fine. But we had to be careful what we were bringing into the country. Now we have fentanyl and drugs and sex trafficking and child trafficking, human trafficking, coyotes that are now getting paid back by illegals that are now under the control of these coyotes, and are having to pay them off. All of that that's just coming across, and then there's the resources that are being uh, taken advantage of, all of those things. We're we're in a crisis, aren't we, in our country over this? Okay, that's an illustration. And I you know there's politics involved, and my isn't my point isn't to make a political speech. But what are the what are some of the things that are coming up? There are rights and freedoms and privileges that a country, a sovereign country, has that its citizens should be able to take advantage of, should be able to enjoy as citizens of that country, right? So, we are in this country, this earth, and many times we are way too caught up in all the advantages and freedoms and rights and all the materialism and all the things that we can get that we feel like we deserve from this earthly dwelling place. When God is saying your true citizenship, your real citizenship, your future and most important, and which should set your priorities in which should determine how you live right now as earthly dwellers, as sojourners, as pilgrims. You're to be light, you're to be salt. Yes, there are certain responsibilities we have as earthly dwellers, as earth dwellers in this temporary place, but we have our eyes on a greater country. What do we read in Hebrews 11? They look for a city or a country. I'm not saying it right but in Hebrews 11, they looked for a city whose builder and maker is God, right? They had their eyes on the heavenly kingdom. And that's Philippians 3 and in, in verse 20. Our conversation is in heaven. We look ahead. We gained our earthly citizenship by birth, maybe by naturalization. But our citizenship in heaven came by being born spiritually through receiving Christ as our personal Savior and being placed into the family of God. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, the children of God, even to them to believe on his name, right? Having received, having believed, we are now declared a child of God. So we are born spiritually through receiving Christ as our personal Savior and placed into the family of God, and our citizenship is in heaven. That brings us now to Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14. Colossians 1, in verses 12 through 14. What does Colossians 1, 12 through 14, teach us about who we are in Christ? There are several phrases here. I'll just go ahead and I'll turn there. Okay, good. So we have partakers of his inheritance. What else do we see there in Colossians 1, 12 through 14? So, partakers of the inheritance. What about verse 13? I'm sorry? Good. Deliverance delivered us from the power of darkness. What's the second half of verse 13? Yes, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, in the kingdom of light. Yeah, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, verse 13. What about verse 14? Anything else that we can draw from this passage as far as who we are in Christ? We have what? Redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. Incredible. What tremendous privileges, benefits, rights, freedoms in Christ, forgiveness of sin, deliverance from the power of darkness, transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, redemption, partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Take a moment and dwell on that, meditate on that, chew on that for a little while. That's humbling, isn't it? Puts us on our knees, it should... cause us to to call out in in praise uh, to our Savior, to our Lord. So then we see, again, in Colossians 1 and verse 13, we're going to see here two worlds, two worlds. The world described of the unsaved, where we were without Christ. Colossians 1 and verse 13, the unbeliever belongs to the world of what? Of darkness. Outside of Christ, we walk in darkness. Do we not see that more and more as the revelation of God's Word, as God is pushed aside, as even churches are neglecting the truths of Scripture, as there is a rampant false teaching and a dereliction of obedience to God's truth and submission to God's truth? We see a world groping about in darkness. We see people protesting in streets who will not call out barbaric, violent, murderous, savage activity of a terrorist organization upon innocent people, refusing to even refer to that as wrong or evil or bad, refusing to call out a terrorist organization. I was listening to... An interview with an Israeli soldier who was in that area where, in the Gaza envelope, the second day, the day after. And he's giving first-hand account in this interview of what he saw. It was, it, it was, it was, it was sobering to listen to. He talked about how there were still terrorists running around the next day trying to do savage things. He said he saw bodies. He said he can't even describe he wouldn't even describe what he saw, except for one. He talked about a woman who was, whose hands were tied behind her back, and she had been brutally raped and murdered. But you have people who, just a few years ago, were calling out the Me Too movement, and if you accuse, then you can't be questioned. And yet none of those people will say a word about the brutal raping and savage behavior and abuse of women. And the Me Too movement won't even talk about that, because those are supposedly Jews who are among the oppressed group. And according to critical theory, the oppressed group can do nothing right, and the oppressed can do nothing wrong. So you can do any sorts of savage, brutal, evil, wicked things, apparently, as long as you're in an oppressed group. But if you are an oppressor, you can't do anything right. That's where we're at in the world. Evil is being called good, and good is being called evil. We're in Isaiah 5. Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. How else is the unsaved described? Unbelieving world. It's described as what? Darkness? Or darkness describes what? The world of wickedness and sin. We continue in that same analogy in 1 John 2 and verse 11, where darkness blinds the eyes. You ever been in a place where it's so dark, you can't even see your hand in front of your face, we've been in a mammoth cave and lights got turned out and it was an oppressive darkness. It was unbelievable how dark it was. It was you could almost feel a pressure from the darkness until she turned the lights back on. Darkness blinds the eyes. Colossians 1 and verse 13 again. The believer, the believer is a member of the world or is a member of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. A member of the kingdom of God's Son. And then 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. Christ came to deliver us from darkness into his marvelous light. And then 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14. Satan what? Disguises himself as an angel of light. So now we have. Whoops, I went too far. There we go. We have several descriptions, contrasts, right, between the unsaved world, the unbelieving world, the world of sin, of darkness, of unrighteousness, dominated by the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, versus the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's son, the kingdom of Christ, quite the contrast, isn't there? What does that say about what kingdom we are to be serving, and who we are to be pledging our loyalty to, and whose truths we should be living according to and in obedience to and whose laws we should be obeying. Yes, we have a responsibility to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but unto God that which is God's. And I feel like many times so-called Christians are doing a lot more rendering to Caesar, and I'm not talking about just government taxes and all that, but I'm talking about just the materialism, the secularism, and all the things that this carnal world has to offer. So then we go to an example. Moses. How did Moses know how to make right choices having grown up in worldly Egypt? Now I know he's an exceptional situation. I realize that he was born of uh, Jewish parents. He was preserved there in that basket. And God had his his hand on, on him in providence and sovereignty. And was going to use him to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And be a great prophet of God and leader. But we still have to look at the practical aspects of Moses' choices. We go to Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 27. We go to Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 27, and we see some principles in Moses' life that were lived out. He had to, after he was weaned from his mother, he had to enter into the college of Pharaoh. He had to enter the Institute of Egyptian Research. I mean, he had to go to some measure of Egyptian schools and training growing up, right? He had to endure some measure of interaction with Pharaoh's court and the other bratty aristocratic kids (laughs) that were part of the administration there under the Pharaoh's regime. He had to interact with that. They were doing what? Probably worshiping false gods. They were probably going about their rituals. I mean, who knows what all was going on in that Egyptian institute, that school of Pharaoh's philosophy or whatever we want to call it. How did he make right choices? Well, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He made a conscious choice. Like Daniel, who purposed in his heart, Moses did what? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We have to make a choice ahead of time before we're put into the pressure cooker. We have to make a conscious choice, a conviction between us and the Lord, founded on the truth of God's word, that is for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He did not want to be identified with Pharaoh and his court and his gods and his religion and his philosophy. He chose to suffer with God's people. He did not choose the passing pleasures of sin. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches. Sadly, we are so enamored with this world and all the carnalities and secularism and materialism and covetousness. We would rather suffer affliction for the passing pleasures of sin than to be identified with the people of God and be on the wrong, wrong side of history. Disgusting. Not that Chris Christie is anything to be, (laughs) to look up to, but he just shifted this week. I used to think that same-sex marriage was bad, but I have realized that we were wrong, my upbringing was wrong, my religion was wrong, and he said it in his quote in in the article I read yesterday, Chris Christie says, "Um, my upbringing was wrong, my religion was wrong. I used to think a certain way, and I've been wrong and discriminatory and bigoted for all these years, and now I've come to be more progressive in my thinking and realize that the world is where it is today. And so now he has come out in support of same-sex unions, same-sex marriage, which we know it's not true marriage. That's what happens. And Moses determined, no, he's not going to be identified with Pharaoh and his court and his administration and all those passing pleasures of sin he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches and he had respect to what the future reward in heaven he understood this was a temporary place for a temporary time with God's call in his life he looked for a kingdom whose builder and maker is God yes Exactly. Yes. Good point. And thank you for... <laughs> and thanks for, for uh, teaching the, the, the teens. Those are important truths. So Moses had a foundation in God and his word. He based his values on his foundation of faith in God. He didn't base his values on all of the trends and false religious views of, of Pharaoh and all that was going on in Pharaoh's administration. No, he based his values on his foundation of faith in God. He based his choices on his values, which again were founded upon the word of God, upon the character of God. And Moses' pattern of choices resulted in good character, who he was, that resulted in a good reputation, what he did. So as we've been talking about in the book of James, knowing, being, and doing. He knew, formed convictions, it became who he was, resulted in right choices. Of course, Moses wasn't perfect, but nevertheless, he was a man of great character, godly man, used greatly of the Lord. Oops. So, a fourth question does your philosophy of life, does my philosophy of life, does our philosophy of life describe the world of darkness or the world of light? Does our view of who we are rest on who we are in Christ? Does my view of who I am rest on who I am in Christ? Or am I constantly trying to find my identity in the world, in the world's values and motives and pleasures? What is the final trustworthy authority that guides us in making right choices? Character building choices. We can choose our sin. Talk about freedom, right? Oh yeah, we can have lots of freedom. We can choose our sin, but we don't get to choose the consequences of our sin. I would deal with this with kids in school all the time. Yeah, that was a dumb thing you said. Yeah, that was a dumb thing you did. Yeah, that was wrong. Let's just call it what it is. It's sin. It's wrong. Well, I didn't know they were going to react to. It. I didn't know they were going to do that. Well, that that <laughs> And then I would sometimes have the parents come in too often, I have the parents come in and defend their, their chil- children's sinful choices, not always, but many, many times, too many times. And it's like, wait a second here, you made the foolish choice. You did that. Yeah, you made the choice to do that, and many times they knew very well that they were trying to get a reaction out of somebody, hoping, and then they could <laughs> right? You know how it is on the football field. The the one guy, he holds or pass interferes and then uh, hopes to get away with it or or he does something. I see it in basketball too. You see really ugly kind of things and then the person reacts. The other player reacts and then they want to point fingers, right? We choose our sin but we don't get to choose the consequences of our sin. In our book, in the men's Bible study, we talked about isolation, indoctrination, identification, and intimidation. A strategy of the devil, the world. Isolate, to get us away from godly influences. Indoctrinate, to change our value system. To get us away from the standard of God's word. To teach us lies. And to fudge on the truth and compromise And begin to make sin look normal and rationalize and excuse sin. And then there's identification. Now there's more of an identification with the world and its values and its types of activities and its behavior and its lies and its immorality and on and on. We're we're more closely identified with that than we are with Christ and his word and with the truths of the Bible. And then there's the intimidation. The control factor, the fear, the persecution, the rejection, and believers stay in a compromised state because they have allowed themselves to be isolated, they've bought into the lies and been indoctrinated, and then they have become more identified with the world, and then no wonder they are under intimidation, afraid now. Um. Wish he had time to, to deal with this some more, but we've been going through that in the book. And then the other illustration besides Moses would then be Daniel, who, having under Darius' reign, been moved into the basically the second in command, the prime minister-president position, even above the other two leaders under Darius— And they were in charge of the 120 governors who then helped to control the population, right? Governed the population. But Daniel was the second. And there's in the book, we talk about this, but I love this quote. When you add the characteristics of excellence, excellence of moral character, integrity, when you add the characteristics of excellence to faithfulness, you get a leader with lion-like character. Daniel filled his trust account with respect, Such honor and opportunity is purchased with the what? The high cost of faithfulness. Daniel was a good steward. He was a steward, a manager of his life, his heart. He purposed in his heart that he was going to obey God. And as he built that trust account with moral excellence and gained the respect because of his integrity and his moral excellence as Darius by God's, Uh, providence and grace, he was moved into a second in command in the empire. Not because of compromise. Not because he sold himself out through bribes and monetary gain and political advantage. No. (laughs) Daniel wasn't in. Remember, this is an empire under a dictator, an emperor. There isn't a democratic (laughs) republic here. Daniel was not out campaigning He was living a faithful, moral life of integrity, purposed in his heart. He was going to please the Lord, not compromise, and God honored him in incredible ways. And I think that Daniel had far more influence than we realize. We'll we'll learn probably more when we get to glory. But such honor and opportunity is purchased with the high cost of faithfulness, even in the little things. So that brings us to this term again that we started with in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2. Steward, manager. Life is a holy trust from the Lord. We are to be a living sacrifice, performing what? What does Romans 12 say? Our reasonable or our expected service. We are to be good managers, good stewards, faithful stewards of this life that God has given us. What's the year 2024 going to bring? it's going to bring a lot of politicking and mudslinging and character assassinations and dirty politics and i mean it's going to get ugly right but we are not of this world doesn't mean that we don't care doesn't mean that we don't defend doesn't mean that we don't stand up doesn't mean that we don't speak up where we should of course but god is doing his work he is going to fulfill his plan and we have a part in that as we trust and obey as we are good stewards and managers of this life that God has given us. So what principles can we learn then? Using this principle of stewardship and thinking of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, what can we learn? Was there ownership as the talents were given out? Sure, the talents ultimately belong to the master, the owner, the, the, the master, the, uh, the overseer. But was there a Ownership of that talent that was given as a stewardship, sure. There was an ownership involved. I wish we had time to go to these other passages. But we can own a house, but we still have to pay, I know, property taxes. We still have to pay a mortgage. Um, We still have to be stewards of the land, of the property. There's a house uh, down the street. I take Mickey on a walk uh, pretty regularly and walk by this house, and it's got a sign on the window, the front door, and it says, not for human occupancy. I think it's a drug house is what I think it is. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's, it's, it's down the street, down the hill on, uh, on Salem. But um, anyway, if we don't steward the house, if we don't follow basic laws and take good care of the property, it can be condemned, it can be repossessed, whatever, right? Ownership, is there not also responsibility? Sure, those talents, five, two, or one. Sure, there's a responsibility. What has God given us? What about our minds? What about our talents, our abilities? What about our measure of knowledge of the truth, the light that we have received? What are we doing with it? What are we doing with what God has so graciously blessed us with? And then comes what? Accountability. Did the master, the overseer come back and check on them? The five multiplied, the two multiplied, they doubled, right? And then what did the one do? He buried. He didn't take good ownership as a manager, as a steward. He didn't fulfill his responsibility. And then when there was accountability, oops, uh uh-oh, there was going to be judgment. There was going to be consequences. What's the year 2024 going to be for us? We don't know if we're going to have the whole 365 days. Is it a leap year? It is? So are we going to have all 366 days? of 2024? We don't know, do we? What are we going to do with each day? Ownership? Accountability? Responsibility? We have a tremendous uh, responsibility before the Lord. Stewardship of how we're going to manage each day. So, every believer is a full-time Christian, full-time servant of the Lord, and full-time manager. Uh, Can't really develop that much more other than to say that we never cease to be a Christian. We don't just compartmentalize our Christianity and set it aside for six days a week or six hours. I mean, We're always a Christian. We're always to be a servant of the Lord and we're a full-time manager. And there is a joy, there is a fulfillment, there is a satisfaction in knowing and accepting these truths. We try to run from them, we get in big trouble. We find ourselves not fulfilling the will of God. We find ourselves under consequential and sowing and reaping judgments and uh, other things. But there is a joy of fulfillment and satisfaction in knowing, accepting these truths. It's an awesome responsibility to be a steward of this life, to be a manager of this life that God has given us, but it should humble us. It should cause us to depend upon the Lord, not to go and bury our talents like the, the one with one did. So we don't divorce our spiritual life We don't divorce our Christianity from any other area of life. So Colossians 3, 1 and verse 17 um, speaks then to our vocation. We're to do everything as unto the Lord, heartily as unto the Lord. But then we've all been given a vocation. Yes, some of it, some of our vocations are going to earn us an income, provide for our living, But do we not have other vocations, callings? Say, what what if I'm just a a stay-at-home mom? Well, these principles still apply. There's plenty of service. Whether we're out making money out of the home or in the home over the Internet, or whether we're just a stay-at-home mom or retired. Is there not service? Does service ever stop? I like how someone said, you never retire, you just retread. (laughs) Until you're physically incapable of... Uh, doing certain kinds of work, you can still pray, right? You can still maybe write a card, send a, a gift, give whatever. But is there an aspect of provision? Yes, even for a, a stay-at-home mom, is she not providing for her family? <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> um, when Kelly was home with the kids, she was she was providing <laughs> in, in in many ways. Uh, giving are are there ways in which we are to be giving? Yes, there's monetary giving. There's the tithes and the offerings and Uh, You have been faithful, sacrificial givers uh, this year. Um, What a a blessing in supporting missions and ministries. Is there not charity work, charitable work? Sure. Uh, Opportunities for us to show our love in action, in physical deeds of kindness. Okay, And you say, well, what if I'm a stay-at-home mom? Is there charitable work that a mom is doing with her kids at home? Uh, maybe you're not physically in a retired position. You're not as physically able to do as many things, but is there still charity? I saw some people here yesterday serving, supporting, loving that maybe can't do some of the physical labor, weren't maybe able to fold a chair or take a table, but they were here and they, and in other ways, behind the scenes, were doing charitable deeds of kindness uh, that often are not even seen by us. And then, oh, the dreaded word taxes. <laughs> Okay, is there a point in which, in our vocation, we have to render unto Caesar? Sure, and Caesar is taking way too much, I know. And we're working later and later into the year just to actually have the things that we have. Um, and the, the government's finding more and more ways to tax us, I realize. But there is a portion that we have to render unto Caesar uh, that is part of our responsibility. And I know that line is getting harder and harder as we are seeing more and more of uh, our, our politics becoming authoritarian and dictatorial Um, but uh, we uh, need to exercise our vote and be informed citizens next year as we get into this political and we need to write and email and call and whatever we need to do because there's a lot of wickedness out there but uh, we have great responsibilities. So part of our earthly citizenship does involve this, these five principles and they matter for eternity. Are we laying up treasures in heaven? So any closing comments or, or questions? All right, I no, we went through this quickly, but hopefully it has been a help to us. And then Lord willing, next week, we'll begin looking at our theme of discipleship as we begin uh, the new year. But again, thank you for uh, being here this morning. And I'm gonna ask Galen Little if he'll close us in prayer and then we'll get ready for the service. Amen. All right, we'll get ready for the service in about 15 minutes.